So I grew up uh, going to church uh, pretty much my whole life. And one of my biggest complaints about going to church, especially from a young age, is I'd go to church and then I'd come home and I'm like, ah, that was kind of a waste of time. I feel like they never give helpful, like advice, practical advice for the real world. Uh, church, I would always go and they'd be talking about all these high and lofty things. And I'm like, that makes no sense to my day-to-day -day life. So I didn't want anyone to come here this morning and then go home and be like, that was just not helpful. So I'm going to give you some helpful advice. Here's my helpful advice for you this morning, and it might seem out of left field, but here it is. Uh, prepare for job interviews. That's my helpful world, world advice for you. You're welcome. That was free of charge. When I say prepare for a job interview, at some point, you might have a job, but you might lose that job and need to get a job, or you might just need a job right now. At some point, you're all going to have a job interview, and here's my advice. Prepare for that interview. Actually get to know uh, the company, get to know something about the organization and the community, learn their story, their backstory, learn about the impact and the influence that this company, organization, community, whatever it is, is actually having. So when you sit down with your interviewer and they're asking questions, you're actually somewhat informed about who they are and what they do and what they have been doing. Now, if you are the interviewee and you're the person uh, sitting on the other side of the table, uh, here is my advice for you. Ask them simply one question. Hey, what do you know about us? What do you know about who we are? What do you know about our story? What do you know about where we've come from? And if they kind of look at you with a dazed look of like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I didn't prepare for that question. Noted, I told you to prepare for that question. But if they tell you I have no idea, then here is your hashtag for you, no job for you. <laughs> if they look at you and tell you, I don't know, well, hashtag no job for you. Now, this real-world practical advice for you is brought to you, not by me this morning, but brought to you by a guy named Nicodemus. Uh, Nicodemus is a first-century uh, scholar. Uh, he was a Pharisee. He was a religious guy. And uh, Nicodemus uh, had an interview of sorts with a man named Jesus. And uh, he came to this interview that he had with Jesus. He was prepped. He knew something about Jesus. He knew what people were saying about Jesus. He knew uh, what Jesus had been doing, and so he brought to the conversation some background of, I know these things about you. Now, I know that you might not be all familiar with Nicodemus, uh, but it's safe to say that this conversation we're going to look at today is probably the most famous conversation uh, in all of Scripture. Old Testament, New Testament is a conversation that took place under the darkness, under the cover of night, between a guy named Nicodemus, religious... Pharisee, biblical scholar, and a conversation that he had with Jesus. Now, again, you might not know Nicodemus, but I'm going to guess that you've seen these uh, three numbers put together before, 316. Uh, if you've ever been to a football game, you always see some crazy guy who got tickets perfectly in between the field goal posts, uh, and he's always got this ginormous cardboard sign that just says 316. Uh, some of you might be familiar with that, but I'm venturing that there's a lot of people who look at those numbers and like, what the heck is 316? And why does he feel so compelled to put on a cardboard sign these three numbers? Tim Tebow? Anyone ever heard of Tim Tebow? He used to play football. <laughs> he doesn't play football anymore. And I'm sure some of you might say he never really played football, even when he was playing football. Tim Tebow uh, was a football player uh, who played at the University of Florida. 
And one of the things that Tebow was very famous, infamous for, was he always had 316 under his eyes. Uh, and in the 2009 BCS championship game against Oklahoma, in which he won, uh, the Florida Gators won, uh, the next day, and on the camera, Tebow was, he's the quarterback, so he's all over the place. And so every time there's a shot of Tebow, all you see is 316 under both of his eyes. Uh, the very next day after they won the national championship, Google reported that were, there was over 90 million hits, searches, specifically for 316. There was all of these people, 90 million of them, who were searching. We just saw Tim Tebow with these letter, or these numbers. What do they actually mean? Uh, Tim Tebow, I don't know if you've ever heard of this game, but uh, the 316 game, anyone? And thank you, there's one of you who watches sports. In 2012, uh, Tim Tebow, in his moment where he was shining, it was like his only moment in the NFL, but he played for the Denver Broncos at the time. I actually like Tebow. I'm not down on Tebow. He's playing in the wild card, the AFC uh, wild card game against the Pittsburgh Steelers. And as Tim Tebow always does, he put 316 under his eyes. So every time the TV is, camera's on him, all you see is 316. Game goes to overtime. And uh, Tim Tebow is like the first or second pass in overtime, throws an 80-yard touchdown pass to Damaris Thomas to win the game, and everyone goes crazy. But the talk of the game, uh, the talk about the game, was not so much about this overtime victory that Tim Tebow led. People were talking about 316, and it became famously known as the 316 game, and here's why. Tim Tebow, in that game, how many yards do you think he passed for? 316, good guess. He averaged, how many yards do you think per pass, per completion, per completed pass? 31.6 yards per completed pass. The ratings for that game, take a guess, 31.6% of U.S. households were tuned in to that AFC wild card playoff game. The Pittsburgh Steelers, time of possession, 31 minutes, 6 seconds. The game only had one interception. Uh, thrown by uh, the Steelers quarterback, Ben Roethlisberger, and take a guess on which down and how many yards to go he threw that interception. Third down, 16 yards to go. The game took place on January 8, 2012, exactly three years to the date of when he played in the BCS 2009 championship game. And so everyone was talking about, what is this 316 all about? Now, I don't want to read too much into that, but... Just saying, 316 is kind of an important number. It's a big number, especially when you consider uh, 316. There's so, people talk about it a lot. And what we wanted to do this Easter season is, what is 316? What is this one verse that garners so much attention, not just from sports athletes and, and people like that, uh, but what is 316? And so this morning, uh, you know, today is, is Palm Sunday. We're going to have Good Friday and then Easter next week. We're going to spend just the better part of this week, three messages, talking about what is 316. Out of 31,200 and some odd verses in the Bible, some people would argue that this is the most important verse in all of Scripture. So what is it about 316 that makes it so significant? Uh, now, before I talk about 316 and this one verse, uh, I wanted to paint the picture of this is a verse that's really spoken, that Jesus is saying this in the midst of a conversation that's taking place. 
so without some background, some context of understanding the conversation that's taking place, you might miss the significance, the weight of what 316 really is. And so before I just share with you a few things about 316, I'm just going to give you two on 316. I wanted to share with some things that I've been learning as I've sat with John chapter 3. Again, this is in the midst of a conversation in the middle of the night taking place between a religious guy and Jesus. And it says in, in John chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus. He was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. Here's his interviewing skills right here. We know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. So he comes prepared. He's got something, Jesus, I'm, I want to talk to you, but I've prepared for this interview here. I've prepared for this conversation. And here's some things that I learned from just sitting in John chapter 3. Uh, the first thing I would just give you is this. These are just observations, but hopefully helpful in understanding 316. The first one would be this. It takes courage to converse with Jesus. It takes courage to converse with Jesus. Now, if you notice right away in verse 1, there's a Pharisee, his name's Nicodemus, uh, part of the Pharisees' ruling council, and it says he came to Jesus at night. Now, it would be easy to just read into that and be like, what a coward. What a wuss. Couldn't handle going and talking to Jesus and interviewing him in the middle of the day for maybe fear of what his friends might say, what others would think of him. And so G or Nicodemus you know, says, hey, the crowds have died down. People are now sleeping. I can just get some one-on-one -on -one time with Jesus. So it would be easy to dismiss Nicodemus and say, total coward. But here's why I say it, it takes courage to converse with Jesus is because he showed up. He showed up. He showed up. And in showing up to converse with Jesus, that took a lot of courage. Because one of the things that I love what Jesus didn't do is Jesus didn't rebuke him. Nowhere in John chapter 3 is there a rebuke of like, you serious? You can't handle talking to me in the middle of the day? Come back during my working hours, and then we'll have a conversation. He didn't embarrass him. He didn't shame him. He actually welcomed and invited the conversation to take place. Have you ever noticed that when you're talking to someone... Um, about spiritual things and the, the J word comes up, meaning the Jesus word, just in case you didn't know what the J word was, it shuts the conversation down. Every time I'm talking with someone and I just even mention Jesus, oh, okay, hey, I got to go. I'm just, I'm not interested in talking about that. I don't want to go there. I don't want to have a conversation about that. Now, there's plenty of reasons why people don't want to talk about Jesus. And this is why I really appreciate Nicodemus is it takes courage. It takes a lot of courage to actually have a conversation about Jesus and who he is and what he's done. And anytime you begin a conversation or converse with someone else or someone is conversing with you about him, recognize that, affirm that, celebrate that as it took courage to do that. Because that's what Jesus did in Nicodemus and saying, Nicodemus, let's talk. Verse, uh, the second thing I'd share with you, this is just observations from John 3. Uh, second one would be this, Jesus is not impressed by what we've done. He only sees what we need. Jesus is not impressed by what we've done. He only sees what we need. John 3, verse 3, just says this. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. It seems kind of an odd response. Like, Jesus, do you have any time for just niceties? Like Nicodemus just came to you and just said, I know who you are. I know you come from God. I've been listening. I've been paying attention. And I've been doing all of these things. 
And Jesus almost completely dismisses that. There's no time where Jesus says, well, Nicodemus, I know who you are. You're a religious stud. I totally have been following you. I know what you know, you've been teaching. I, I just, I love it. I appreciate it. Immediately, Jesus skips over all of that, and he just jumps into Nicodemus. I'm telling you very, the truth here. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How shocking do you think that would have been for Nicodemus to hear that? Keep in mind, he's a religious guy. Keep in mind that much of Nicodemus's his worldview is work hard, perform good effort, do your best. But Jesus says, Nicodemus, you're not going to see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. Jesus is leading him to see that it's not about what he does, but about something that will be done for him. And I love that's what Jesus does. He helps us to see what our needs are. He's not impressed with our resume of, well, I've done this. I know this. I've been here. I've gone there. I, he's not impressed with that. Jesus dumps, drives right into the heart of the matter for Nicodemus and says, you're not going to see the kingdom, Nicodemus, unless you are born again. Do you remember the game um, Show and Tell? I used to love Show and Tell in, in grade school. They stopped playing it for some reason in middle school and high school. I don't know why. Um, but I loved it. You always got to bring in, like, maybe if you had a pet or if you had this, like, favorite thing that you love to do. And I would love show and tell. You could bring in something, show people, and then you could tell them something about it. For me, I'm 42. And I realize that I still love playing show and tell, but I love to do it with Jesus. I love to show Jesus, hey, did you see that? Ha have you been paying attention to all these things I've been doing over here and over here? Are, are you watching? Because I want to show you all of these things that I'm doing. And then, Jesus, I want to tell you about all of these things. And what I've discovered over the years is Jesus is not really all impressed with my show and tell. It's like, Michael, you can show me whatever you want. You can show me whatever your resume might look like. But I will love you enough to tell you what it is that you need. I wrote it down in my journal like this. Jesus is gracious enough to always tell us what we need despite our best efforts to show him what we've done. Jesus is gracious enough to always tell us what we need despite our best efforts to show him what it is we've done. I see that. He did that with Nicodemus. He does that with me, and he loves you enough to look beyond what we think our impressive resume is to say, this is what your need is. Uh, another observation that I would give you from John 3 would be this. Life with Jesus is about the journey with him. Life with Jesus is about the journey with Jesus. Notice what um, Nicodemus' response to Jesus is. It says in verse uh, 4, Well, how can someone, and remember, okay, your mind is somewhat blown. I'm not going to see the kingdom unless I'm born again. And here's his response. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And I, I would have loved to have seen Jesus' response like, wow, that's your starting point. Like you really think you're going to have to somehow. And so Jesus seeks to explain. Okay, Nicodemus, I'm not saying you physically are going to have to enter your mother's womb again. And he seeks to explain what it means to be born again. And I love in verse 9 after Jesus explains the how of being born again, Nicodemus says this, well, how can this be? 
love that his response is, yeah, I heard what you said, but I, I, I don't get it. I still don't understand at all, Jesus, what you are talking about. So what I love about Nicodemus is that he was honest and humble enough to say, I don't get it. I hear what you're saying, but I really do not understand what it is you are actually talking about. And what I've noticed is when we're too prideful to admit that we don't know something, we miss out on learning the very thing we need to know. What I love about Nicodemus is he was humble enough to admit, I don't know this. I don't actually get this, rather than hiding behind what he thought he did know. What happened to him? Okay, so if what I'm learning is life with Jesus is about the journey with Jesus, then what happened to Nicodemus? Well, I don't know. I'd love to tell you, because at the end of John chapter 3, or kind of halfway through John chapter 3, the conversation ends, and we see Nicodemus two more times. We see him in John chapter 7, and uh, he says something in response to uh, the crowds, his Pharisees. And then we see Nicodemus again uh, towards the end of the gospel story after Jesus has died. Uh, Nicodemus and another guy named Joseph of Arimathea says, we want to take Jesus' body and we want to give him a proper burial. So I don't want to speculate that he all of a sudden became a follower of Christ just because he took the body of Christ, body of Jesus. Maybe he was like, you know, what we did to that man was wrong and we're going to give him a proper burial. At the end of the day, I'm just not sure. But Again, here's what I wrote down in my journal. Life with Jesus is a journey, but there comes a point where we all need to make a decision about Jesus, a decision that will impact what the rest of our journey will look like. What I loved what Jesus did for Nicodemus is he planted seeds, and he left it at that. He didn't you know, keep talking through the entire evening, trying to force down Nicodemus' mind and heart what he couldn't possibly understand in that moment. Jesus invited Nicodemus to go on a journey with him, and he just planted seeds. And the seeds started with Nicodemus. This is what you need. If you're going to see the kingdom, you need to know that you need to be born again. How many times do you think Nicodemus replayed that conversation over the next few months, over the next few years? So Jesus is concerned about the journey that he is taking you on, and he will lead you. But there does come a point in time where you need to make a decision. I don't know what decision Nicodemus made, but I knew, do know the decision that we do make. Nicodemus could have been like, all right, well, peace out. You make no sense to me. I'm going to go out and do my own thing. But I have a feeling Nicodemus said, I'm going to hang in there. I want to learn some more. I'm curious. I'm curious enough to know that I will be the guy that when you die, I'm going to show up and take your body, care for it, and put it in uh, a proper tomb. Jesus cares about the journey that he has you on. The decision that you need to make is honestly simply, what do you, who do you say that he is? Because if you just say that Jesus is a good teacher, a moral man, a prophet, religious guy, uh, well, that's going to make no impact or difference in your life. That will change what your journey with Jesus actually looks like. But if you come to the point and say, I don't think Jesus was just a moral guy. I don't think Jesus was just a religious teacher. I just don't think he was a prophet, like a good guy. I think he is who he said he was. I think he was the son of God. If you make that decision, then the rest of your journey is going to be lived out in light of Jesus is, in fact, who he said he is, did what he accomplished, and live out what that means for you. One last thing that I'd give you as way of observation from John chapter 3 uh, would be this. 
Jesus is most concerned about your eternity. It's not to say that Jesus doesn't care about your everyday life. He does. But it is to say that what he cares most about is not the here and now, but what he cares most about is your eternity. Towards the end of their conversation in John 3, verse 14 and 15, Jesus says this, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, uh, and he's helping Nicodemus understand an Old Testament story that Jesus ultimately is going to fulfill. Uh, So so, uh, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life with him. I love that Jesus started the conversation with Nicodemus about his eternity. And then everything he said to him afterwards led him to see the significance and the weight of your eternity matters, Nicodemus. Your soul matters. If you continue down the course you're on, you will miss seeing the kingdom of God. And this conversation for Jesus and this conversation that Jesus has with you, he cares about your eternity. And what I love about what happens next in 316, the verse everyone knows or has at least seen or heard of, is Jesus tells us this is how eternity works. So as we are going to look at just very quickly 316, I'm going to share with you two thoughts, two things that I see in the, and we're going to look specifically, uh, here's the verse in its entirety. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Okay, what we're going to look at today is the phrase at the very beginning, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. I'm convinced if you keep 316 in light of the conversation that it was, that Jesus spoke these words, uh, a conversation late at night with a religious guy, it's going to really help you understand rightly the significance of 316. And here's two things I'd share with you of what I see from these, that phrase. Um, number one would be this. All people, and I want to stress all, capital A-L-L, all people are loved by God unconditionally. All people, not some people, not a few people, not just the good people, not the religious people, not the moral people, but John 3, 16, all people are loved by God unconditionally. It says in the verse, for God so loved the world. And I, I stress all and I stress unconditionally because there is not a condition on 316. And what that means is there's no condition in your life where God will look at you and be like, eh, you've been doing a good job. All right, I love you. (laughs) There's no hoop. There's no circles that you have to jump through that when you go through A, B, and C, X, Y, and Z, God's going to be like, all right, uh, you got my love. There is no condition in which you could ever meet where you would hear those words, I love you. The love that God has for all people, not some, not a few, not a majority, but all people, is an unconditional love. C.S. Lewis uh, rightly said in Mere Christianity, uh, he loved us not because we are lovable, but because he loves us. That's it. God didn't look at you. He didn't look at me and be like, gosh, you are just like a cute puppy. I love you. And like warm up all these feelings within God when he just looked at you and just was like, I love you so much. (laughs) God looked at the world that he created and said, despite the world, meaning the people being unlovable and doing unlovely things, I will declare 
Not a conditional love, but an unconditional love for them. So here's a question. For God so loves the world, does that shock you? Because it should. Because you know the world. You know all the evil that exists in the world. You know all the atrocities that people commit against people. You know all the crimes. You know all of the abuse. You know all of the things that I know that the world is so fallen, so much evil. Is it shocking to you that God says, I love all of the world, not part of the world, not the good parts. I love all of the world. And to be clear, when it says, uh, for God so loved the world, he's not talking about like creation. He's not talking about like the great outdoors where God's like, I love that part of the world, but these people are so messed up. God looks at all of the world, all of the people, and says, I love them. Could you do that? To be honest with you, when someone criticizes me, I have a hard time loving them. For what? Being criticized? Could you possibly love the world in all of its just, not loving the evil, but loving the people who even commit evil? So for me, personally, what amazes me about for God so loved the world is not so much that God has the ability or the capacity or capability to love the world like that. What amazes me is that he can love me like that. Because I know me. And I know, I know me. And it is amazing, it's humbling, it's shocking to know that God says, but Michael, I, I know you, I know all of you, and I still declare an unconditional love for you. Uh, J.A. Packer, in a great book called Knowing God, said, we have proud, unbelieving, thoughtless, careless, greedy, self-serving spirit. We live to please ourselves, and in our hearts, we keep God at bay. Our egocentric, anti-God attitude seeks to play God, use God, fool God, and fight God all at the same time. I read that, and I'm like, so me. How is it possible that God could look at me, someone who has been so selfish, hard-hearted, stubborn, rebellious, prideful, arrogant, lustful, and you just name it, and say, but Michael, I still love you. Man, when are you going to get it? There is no condition I have on my love for you. And so my question is, well, how is it possible for God to love you like that? How is it possible for him to love me like that? How is it possible for him to love the world like that? And here's what I wrote down in my journal, because I cannot change by what I do who he is. I cannot change by what I do or by what I don't do who he is. I, uh, I drive a 1994 Chevy Suburban. I know, that's how I roll. It's a pretty sweet, rusted out ride. And... No matter how I think about, gosh, it would be so great to have like a 2014, like Chevy Suburban. Like I haven't had heat or air conditioning in my car for like four years. It just, it decided one day, hey, I'm like 16 years in my existence and I'm done. I just don't feel like giving you heat or air conditioning. No matter how I think about my Suburban, no matter what I say about my Suburban, no matter how much I wish it was something else, it will always be a 1994 Chevy tan rusted out suburban i can't change that no matter what you do no matter what you say no matter what you think you cannot change who god is 
1 John chapter 4, uh, the same gentleman who wrote the Gospel of John is writing this letter, and it just simply says in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. No matter what I do or don't do, I cannot change who God is. So love is not this emotion that God decides to turn on or turn off. Love is just who he is. He can't, if he were to cease loving you, he would cease to be God. And so that to me is, I cannot change by what I do who he is. That's how it's possible for God to love a world that has rebelled, that has sinned, that has been all of these things. God says, you're not going to change me. And my stance towards you, towards the world, towards all people is that I love you. So don't miss your goodness or badness will never change who he is, nor his posture towards you. You are one who's unconditionally loved by God. I was telling some friends last night, and I didn't do this, but I was really tempted just to come up here this morning and just walk out on stage and just simply say, you are one who is loved unconditionally by God, and just sit down. Because that is enough. What else do you need to hear? What else do I need to hear? Yet you are loved by God. You won't change that. Even if you reject that, that doesn't change. God's not changing his posture towards you. You are one who is unconditionally loved by God. How do I know that? Someone came up to me and said, Michael, I heard you say that God loves me. How do I know that? How do I know that's just not words? Like, what would you say? What would you say to someone who, who says, how do I know that God loves me? Because don't you want God to love you? Like, it's, it's easy to say God loves me. Well, who would want to, I want God to hate me. I, I just would prefer a God who ignores me, is indifferent towards me, doesn't care about me, and actually can't stand me. So it's easy to say, well, God loves you. Who would want the alternative? How do you know? How do you know God loves you? Is it just because I'm telling you? Is it because someone else told you? Is it because you read it somewhere? How do you know? It's like a wife who says to her husband, man, I keep hearing you say I love you, but your actions are so inconsistent with your words. And there comes a point where you hear something so much, and if there's nothing there afterwards, it's easy to stop believing it. So how do you know? And this is the second thing I want to share with you, and we'll finish with this. The love of God is a visible love. The love of God is a visible love. It's a demonstrated love. It's not just a verbal affirmation. It is a visible, tangible, expressive, demonstrated love for you. Uh, Mark Driscoll uh, wrote a great book a few years ago called Death by Love. Um, and he said this, when people speak of love, they usually mean nothing more than an emotional love that feels affectionate but may not do anything to help the beloved. And that's a pretty accurate assessment. When we think about the love, we're thinking about our love that we have and how it makes us feel. But that doesn't always translate into that person benefiting from the love that we have for them. And he goes on to say, thankfully... God does not merely feel loving towards us. His love actually compels him to act on our behalf so that we can be changed by his love. And I love how he just, thankfully, God's love is nothing really like our love. 
thankfully, the love that God has is visible, it's tangible, it's expressed, it's demonstrated, and it's a love that just doesn't leave us as it found us. It's a love that has the power to actually change us. So God's love for you, it's not a feeling, it's not an emotion, it's who he is. And he demonstrates that love for you when it simply says in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Someone asks me, Michael, how do I know Jesus or God loves me? Because Jesus showed up. Because God sent his son. That's it. How do I know? Well, he didn't just speak his love. He demonstrated it. And I know that God loves me unconditionally because he sent his son for me. 1 John 4 says this. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Isn't it interesting that 2,000 years ago, a letter had to be written to a community of people who were probably wrestling with this very thing of, how do I know? And so John says, well, this is how you know. God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. I can't think of a scenario. I've got three kids, uh, 11, 10, and 8. And I can't think of any scenario under the sun um, where I would tell someone, hey, if by me sacrificing my son or my daughter means that you will benefit in some way, that I would somehow do that. I can't think of a scenario where I would do that. So how is it possible that God does that with his own son? And I want it to be clear, this is not a statement about a poor relationship that the father and the son had. The relationship is they were one. So this is not a statement of God must not really love the son being Jesus all that much because he just sent him to be sacrificed. This is a statement of just how loved you are by God. How do I know? Because he sent his son. Who else would do that? Who else would do that? No one. But God said, I love you this much. So when you're confused, when you're filled with feel, uh, fear and doubt of how I feel about you, I just want you to remember I sent my son. The power for me in the first part of John 3.16 in the midst of this incredible conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus is simply God loves all of you, me, all of the world unconditionally. And I know this for certain because God has demonstrated that love for us in the sending of his son. So what do we do? Okay, Uh, I want us to walk away with some semblance of, okay, this is encouraging, maybe challenging, maybe inspiring, but what do you actually do with this? As I've been praying and thinking about it, I, I wrote of the application of how can we apply these two truths, loved unconditionally, and it's a demonstrated, visible, tangible, expressed love in the sending of Jesus. And I just wrote it down like this. You can trust him. He's not holding out on you. I've met too many people who really believe that God's either out to get them or ruin them or just make their life completely miserable. And they think that somehow by walking with God or trusting God or going on that journey with Jesus, that somehow, some way, they're going to miss out on the greatness of what this world has to offer you. And I just wanted you to catch from John 3, 16, the first part of it, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, is you can trust him. He's not holding out on you. 
And this was a truth that transformed the Apostle Paul years later, because years later when he's writing Romans, the Apostle Paul says this, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? If he didn't hold back his son, what else could he possibly be holding back from you that would cause any amount of fear in you not to trust him? And not just to trust him once in a while, but to trust him all the time with the, the questions you have. Like Nicodemus, this does not make sense, but I'm going to trust you even in the midst of my questions that don't have answers right now. Even in the midst of my pain and suffering, I so desperately want to get out of the season, I'm going to trust you that you love me unconditionally. That's expressed, that's demonstrated in the sending of your son. So this season that I'm in, I will trust you that this is what you have. This is what's best. This is an expression of your love for me. And rather than trying to bail and escape that, God, I'm going to rest easy in the love that you have for me. I just wanted you to hear, you can trust him. He's not holding out on you.